Hi everybody, welcome to another episode of Stock Talk. My name is Amin Reina and I'm an investment coach and founder of Sage Investors. And what I do as an investment coach is I help new and experienced investors who wanna be financially secure but feel confused, intimidated by the whole, by this whole kind of investing concept. They either don't know where to start or they feel really frustrated that they're not making enough progress with their portfolios. So what I do as an investment coach is I teach people, I engage with people on how to make better educated investment decisions so they can achieve some level of financial freedom in their life. So that's kind of what I do. Uh, so this is Stock Talk. This is my little uh, podcast slash video that I like to put together once a week where I talk about various different investing concepts, observations that I'm seeing in the markets, and also some of my own personal investment decisions and with the hope that you can take some of it away and uh, apply it to how you make uh, investment decisions uh, for your life and for your circumstances. Well, this is episode 75. And before I get into the topic today, I wanted to give one little announcement, one little special announcement. I think I've mentioned it in some previous episodes, but I just want to bring it out here just to let people know, is I'm all good to go to do another webinar on a different investing topic. As you know, I've done a couple of webinars this year on demystifying certain investing concepts, topics, what have you. And so my next and latest uh, webinar is coming up on Thursday, May 25th at 12 noon. It's kind of a lunchtime time thing, so it'll be like for an hour. And uh, what I'm gonna talk about is ETFs. We're hearing so much about ETFs. They're really kind of taking the investing and in a certain way disrupting uh, the whole uh, investment industry. And um, there's a lot of people out there who know about ETFs, but really don't know what they're about, what all, you know, how they work, uh, what's go good about them, what's so not good about them, uh, how do you go about figuring out uh, ETFs. So a lot of people ask me uh, questions about it. And so I thought I'd do a webinar and kind of demystify, kind of take a, lift the, uh, lift the curtain a little bit behind these things. And so hopefully you come away with some insights into what they're about and whether they would make an appropriate, uh, be worthy of your consideration in, in your own personal invest uh, investment portfolio. So I'll be doing that on Thursday, May 25th at 12 noon Eastern time. If you're interested, there's limited seating, virtual seating, I guess, uh, for the webinar. And uh, if you're interested, you can go to my website, www.sageinvestors.ca, and there is a link there to the webinar. All you gotta do is just uh, drop your name, email address, and you'll get a confirmation from me uh, along with the coordinates on uh, for the webinar. And uh, yeah, I'd be glad to have you. I've done a couple of these now. I've really enjoyed them, and I'm, I, I like doing them. Uh, I've been trying them out this year, and I, I like them because it's, uh, sharing with you some of my, some basic insights that really I think you need to know as investors as you be either begin your journey or if you're, you've been doing it for a while and looking for some ideas and concepts on how to, how to work your uh, portfolio. So check it out. Uh, be glad to have you aboard for it. So today, uh, gonna talk a little bit, today is actually Investment Decisions Day. And uh, I've noticed that since we've gone to the, to the podcast format, that uh, one of the some of the more popular uh, podcast episodes that I've done uh, of Stock Talk have been the ones where I talk about uh, my own <laughs> investment decisions, where I share with people what I've been doing with my own investments, and kind of walking through people, walking through 
you know, how I went about making those decisions, the decisions to either buy something or a decision to sell something. So uh, today it's Investment uh, Decisions Day. Uh, I just posted actually on my website, sageinvestors.ca, my latest uh, round of investment decisions. So you can go check that out and uh, see what I have been doing for the previous month. And, uh, but I'm gonna be talking about it here right there. So you can either go check out the website and follow me along or do one or the other. So whatever works for you. Um, why I do this is, I think it's really important as, a, as an investment coach, I teach people how to, you know, the mechanics and the behavioral side of making investment decisions, of analyzing stocks or ETFs. And it's one thing, I really feel strongly, it's one thing for me to teach this stuff uh, and mentor people and help people with this stuff. It's a totally different thing for me to not model the behavior. I very much believe that I, in, in practicing what I teach. And so I find that this blog and now the podcast version is uh, a good way for me to demonstrate, to show people that, you know what, the stuff that you're gonna learn here with me is stuff that you can be really helpful for you and can be helpful for you in terms of making successful investment decisions. So that's today I'm gonna talk about a couple of decisions that I made uh, in the past month, in the month that we just uh, finished, and talk about some of my thought processes of how I went through them. Another thing I gotta say also, before I get into it, is, uh, it's very important that people understand that the, the, the decisions that I made are by no means uh, are an endorsement or a sort of like a recommendation for you to go out and buy and sell these type of stocks, uh, the ETFs that I'm talking about. Um, yeah, the, uh, it's, uh, the, I'm, not, uh, I'm not Kramer here. I'm not here to give you stock tips. Uh, that's not what I do. That's not part of what I do as an investment coach. What I'm here to share with you is really the education side of it, the thought process, the rationale of how you get to these decisions. So uh, by all means, the companies that I talk about here, and this is kind of my little disclaimer, is by no means I'm not recommending that you go out and buy and sell these stocks uh, and ETFs. Far from it. Um, so I just want to put that out there. I always have to put that out there just so people don't uh, get any strange ideas. So decisions. I made two decisions uh, in the previous month. Uh, one was a buy decision and one was a sell decision. So let's just do, let's just do the buy decision first. Okay, my first decision was to, uh, I decided to buy, uh, open up a position and start building some shares in the, in an ETF. Uh, ticker symbol is the XLF and it's also known as it's the iShares US Financials uh, financial services ETF. Basically, it's an ETF that invests in a basket of US um, financial services companies. So you're talking about all the banks, um, insurance companies, brokerage companies. So you got your Bank of America, your Citibanks, your Goldman Sachs, all your insurance companies, your Chubbs, uh, <clears throat> um, all in there. So it's a big basket of financial stocks. So why, why did I do that? Why, why have I decided to get into financials at this stage of the game? Well, if you've been following some of my previous episodes, I've been kind of trying to mind map and try to figure out how the heck do we make investment decisions in the current time where we're in, where we got this new president who I affectionately call the Mad King, who is out there making decisions by tweet and is created this whole dynamic right now. There's a whole kind of vacuum going on and uncertainty in terms of what policies are gonna be like. So we're all, as investors, we're trying to figure out where we're gonna park our money. So we're, how do we park our money 
uh, investor money in a time right now where we have a very kind of unstable, ad hoc kind of uh, governance mechanism in the United States. So one of the things that Trump has been talking about and he campaigned on and uh, was, you know, the whole draining the swamp, you know, getting rid of Walt, you know, getting all the garbage that's uh, been going on with Wall Street in the last, uh, since the financial crisis. That's one thing he's been saying, but what he's actually doing is he's really, his policies or his uh, tone and the, the direction that his administration seems to be following is to roll the clock back, to roll, to essentially get back into, I call it the hot tub time machine and take us back to 1989. And go back to a time where where, uh, if you remember 1989, uh, the whole concept of uh, financial regulation was pretty much dismantled and deregulated. And uh, what happened in 1989 was the uh, Glass-Steagall Act, which was been around since the 1920s, which essentially limited uh, banks from engaging in other different types of businesses. So a bank couldn't um, sell insurance, a bank couldn't sell stocks, couldn't be a broker, a bank couldn't do wealth management. Um, it had to be a bank, it was just more so a lending thing. And Glass-Steagall was that mechanism to, to regulate banks uh, in terms of how they operated. So in 1989, they signed, uh, they kind of got rid of it and replaced it with a new set of policies. And essentially what it allowed banks to do was allowed banks to expand, allowed banks to engage in all different kinds of businesses, uh, other types of financial businesses. And so that whole deregulation of financial services, which occurred, fostered a, a good, solid run um, for banks. They got bigger, they, got, they merged, they got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and started selling a wide variety of services. And in the process, the stock prices really benefited from it. We know how the story ended in 2008. Boom, everything kind of blew up. And then what happened was the government came in, stepped in um, and introduced, got you know, clamped down. Instead of having this unfestered deregulation of financial services, we have now regulation of financial services. And that was where the Dodds-Frank Act was introduced to clamp down on what banks could do and how in terms of how they could be compensated and what they were allowed to do. And in terms of disclosure, they had to provide a lot more disclosure in terms of their operations and their businesses. Uh, and the intention was it was to protect consumers who have been just ridiculously burnt, burned out, burned from the financial crisis and uh, protect them from that side of it. So, so what's Trump doing now is essentially he wants to roll back uh, the Dodds-Frank Act. He wants to go back to 1989 where the banks basically were deregulated and allowed to run unfestered, unfettered um, in their businesses. And so the logic being, and personally from my perspective, I think I, dis I disagree with the concept uh, because we've, we've seen how the story played out. We know how the story uh, played out. Um, from a consumer perspective, it didn't work out very well. And a lot of people got hurt, a lot of people lost money, and a lot of people were making investments in things that they had no business to do. Banks benefited from it, shareholders benefited from it, but the consumer got really burned. And they're still feeling the edge, uh, uh, the pain from it. And to this date, nobody in the financial services industry, aside from paying a whole bunch of fines and paying a bunch of funny money has ever admitted to doing any wrongdoing. No one has been criminally, criminally prosecuted for the stuff that happened in 2008 and 2009 and all the events leading up to it.
So philosophically, I have an issue with this, what, he, what he's trying to do. But we have to take the philosophical side of it with the investing side of it. And at the end of the day, we're investors and we gotta make decisions. So the prospect, if he actually goes through with this and rolls everything back and repeals all this regulation and goes back to a really crazy deregulated uh, landscape, if that's the environment he's trying to uh, create, that's good for, in my opinion, and we've seen how history has shown, that that's a good thing for bank stocks. That's a good thing for financial companies. They're going to benefit. They're gonna maybe start growing again. Again, philosophically, I am opposed to it, but from an investment perspective, we're looking to make investment decisions. It could be good for stocks in the medium to long term. And it might end up resulting in another financial crisis. We don't know, but again, we have the benefit of hindsight to look at it. So. It came, it's, as I've been seeing this, it just came more clear to me that, you know what, I may be, if this actually plays out, that I might need to have some exposure to US bank stocks, US financial companies. Now, as I said, I like to go analyze individual companies. One thing I don't analyze is individual bank companies. I, I don't analyze financial services companies, mainly because the accounting for them is very, very different than from a traditional service-based or industrial manufacturing kind of company. The accounting uh, treatments that are applied are very different and not sometimes are very convoluted and at sometimes very kind of black boxy feeling. They're based on a lot of assumptions. And uh, I just don't feel comfortable and I just don't have the time or the wherewithal to try to figure out whether <clears throat> Bank of America is a better stock than Citibank or whether Goldman Sachs is a better company than JP Morgan. I just don't have the time to figure it out. So I made a decision say, you know what, I I'm just going to hold a basket of these type of financial companies in my portfolio and have that exposure to that segment. And so that led me to my decision to buy the XLF, um, primarily because if you look at the, the data behind it, it's a very liquid ETF. It trades almost 6 million shares a day. Um, and the cost associated with the management expense ratio, the MER for it is, is 0.14%. So it's a very cheap, low cost, gives you broad diversification in the financial services section sector and uh, tracks it pretty well. So I made the decision to buy the XLF to give me that exposure. So that's one decision that I made, uh, one investment decision that I made last month. The second decision that I made was a sell decision. I decided to sell my position in Whole Foods and I sold it, I bought it for 20, oh my God, I can't even, off the top of my head, I can't think about it. I've bought it a couple of times and I've averaged it down and so my average cost was coming in around 29.80, I think, 20, around the 29 market uh, in the, uh, at that point. And I sold it uh, just recently, uh, obviously in the last month, I sold it for 36, 36.10 or 36.50. So what happened? I made on the, on the decision, on that investment decision, I made 27% on it, so, which is great. I was, I'm more than happy to it. I was surprised. I thought I was gonna end up holding it for a lot longer. Um, basically because uh, the stock itself, up until really last month, has been pretty much flat. It's been kind of dead money. Uh, for the last year. It really hasn't had any much traction. It's just really fluctuated in a very narrow range. Um, but I bought it, if, uh, you know, logic of it, it was, uh, I thought it was cheap and I thought it was out of favor. And I think uh, Whole Foods is still the best of breed is uh, in its niche, which is uh, higher end grocery, higher end food products and catering to that whole foodie culture. It's still, 
to me is sort of the best of breed kind of company and it's, it does that. The stock's been really kind of treading water because it's there's been uh, from an analyst perspective, they're concerned that the company's losing market share now because uh, other uh, grocery companies, grocery stores like uh, Safeway and uh, Walmart or even Amazon now are now getting into selling more healthy, health conscious kind of foods, organics, uh, higher end kind of higher margin kind of uh, food and whittling away at Whole Foods share. And so that's an element that's been kind of holding the stock back or just kicking the stock down a bit over the last year. The other side of it too was because of losing market share, there's been a lot of pressure on the company saying, you know what, the company needs to start appealing more to millennials and a more younger crowd because, uh, and provide an offering that's more conducive to them because Right now, the way they're set up is that they're pricing themselves out of that whole market. And they say, oh, you gotta be in millennials. Millennials have to be there because they're gonna buy everything in the future. So they've come under a lot of pressure to do something. And they've been trying to do that by actually creating another layer of stores, smaller scale stores called Whole Foods 360, 365, um, that are much more smaller and sell a more um, generic kind of uh, food offering at a lower price point. Again, going after that younger crowd and selling them and setting up stores in uh, more urban kind of locations. So they're trying to do that and the jury's still out because it's just early days with them. They're just starting to open up stores with that. And the jury's still out with it. And so that's kind of, these elements have put a lot of pressure on the stock. However, you know, when I bought the stock, when I looked at it, I looked at it from another perspective and the fact is, despite all this stuff that's going on, despite all these supposed clouds that all the analysts say that the company should be doing, the company's making money. They're generating, still generating strong returns on capital greater than, than their cost of capital. The balance sheet is clean. There's hardly any debt. There's no debt in the balance sheet. A lot of cash in the bank. So this company's not going out of business. It's creating tangible wealth and has a really clean financial structure to it. So, and it's financially stable. So these are great things that you wanna have as an investment, but the market just didn't wanna recognize any of that. And there's been a lot of pressure on the company, a lot of analysts out there talking about, well, they should sell. They should sell it because it's, it would make it a really good takeover candidate for, for a private equity hedge fund kind of thing. So type like that. So the stock's been languishing for the last year, but it's just only recently that the stock has kind of woken up. And one of the big reasons why it's woken up is uh, one of the big activist uh, funds out there, Jana Investment Partners, uh, recently announced that they bought a 9% stake in the company. They bought, bought 9% of the stock in the company. And so Jana, they're uh, like all activist, adventure, uh, activist investors like to kind of want to push management to start doing things. And one of the things that they're pushing, want to push management to do is to sell the company. They feel that there's a lot of value in the stock. The stock is undervalued. There's a, they could get a really wicked price for it. So one of the things they're doing is trying to push management to buy the stock. So so if that's the case, then if management uh, agrees with it and sells the company, then yeah, that's gonna put a bump on the stock price. So the stock has been creeping up uh, in the last while uh, because of this concept of it actually being um, getting taken out. And there were actually rumors, and they've died down now, that uh, one of the other grocery companies, Albertsons, was seriously kicking the tires uh, and on the verge of making an offer for Whole Foods. So there's all these dynamics that are in play that have kind of led the stock to pop up. So from my perspective, and when I was making my investment decision on it, and the reason why I decided to sell, 
is for those people who have actually been following um, my podcast or my blogs, my investment decision blogs, is one of the things I have is when I make investment decisions, uh, when I decide to buy a stock, is I need to have, I always want to have an exit strategy. When would I be willing to sell this stock? If it were to go up, what would be my exit, you know, what would be my price to get out of that stock? And it's, I feel it's really important as part of when you're developing your investment strategy or your investment plan or your framework for how you make investment decisions, is to have that exit strategy, to have that threshold where, you know what, I'm happy to sell the stock at this point, at this level of return, um, because it meets what I want to meet for, for my own personal goals, uh, for my own personal investing goals. So it's really important to sell, set kind of like that, that level, that number, have that number in your head in terms of return or a price that you would be willing to sell it, you know, no questions asked, without having kind of that emotional side of it to it. Because one of the things that it's a problem though that investors have, it's not so much buying stocks, it's the selling of stocks. Because a lot of times selling becomes more of an emotional decision. We feel, yeah, I'm up, you know, I'm making, uh, I mean, I'm up $1,000 on this stock. And uh, you know what, I think it can go up uh, another $1,000. So you know what, I'm just gonna hold on to it for a little while. And you hold on to it and you hold on to it a little bit more than you should have. And the next thing you know, the thing goes down and you've lost money or you've, you've left money on the table. And uh, a lot of it is just emotion. A lot of it is just greed. <laughs> it really, uh, becomes really front and center um, when we're making a selling decision. So for me, my number in my head, when it, whenever I, for any stock that I buy or any ETF that I buy is 20%. If I can make 20% return on this stock, I would be happy to sell it, no questions asked. And so what I do when a stock crosses that 20% threshold is I, I don't just automatically sell it. I don't have like sell orders, automatic sell orders. I step back and I actually review the company. I take a look at what the company's doing. I take a look at where they are, where they're going, what's going on in the company. And I decide, you know what? You know what? Maybe it might be worthwhile holding onto the stock for a little bit more. Or, you know what? I'm good. I'm done. I'll sell it. And if the stock, but I still like the company and if the stock comes back, then you know what, I'll buy it again because if the fundamentals of the business are still there. Um, that's how I do it. Uh, for me, I like to take my profits in bite-sized portions. I'm not, I'm not that good, and that's me because everybody has a different you know, tolerance. I prefer to have you know, nice chunks of profit instead of having this monster home run. That's how it works for me. And I like taking chunks of profits and then if the stock comes back, buying it back again, taking another chunk of profit. I like kind of iterating through it. It may not be day trading because a lot of times my day, my holding periods might be one year, two years, three years. So I kind of iterate over multiple years doing this kind of thing. But that's me. That's how I'm comfortable investing. It's I would not say that's what everybody else should do because everybody has a different uh, mindset, value system, um, time horizon, all that stuff. So. So as it pertains to Whole Foods, I came up to a situation, it popped, you know, the stock popped, it went up to $36, it was up over 20, it was right away, I was over 25% on it. And so I had made a decision, I looked at it and I go, okay, you know what, is it worth it to hold on to the stock right now or should I sell it? Should I just bank the profit? Which is pretty healthy, I'm pretty happy with 27% profit, 27% return. So ultimately what I decided was, I think the stock went up, from my perspective, went up way too far, way too fast. And there's a lot of uh, 
you know, speculation behind it now in the in terms of whether it's going to get taken out. I have no idea when that's going to happen, if it happens at all. And I was, my thought process was, you know what? I just rather bank the profit. And if the stock comes back down, if the takeover, because there have been rumors in the past that the company is going to get taken over and it never happened and the stock just fell back. So I basically said, you know what? I'm going to make this decision that I'll just bank the profit. I have no idea if it's going to get bought out and I'll just take my profit and come back another day. I still love the company. I think it's a fabulous company. It's a well-run, they got some really solid management, creative management, visionary kind of management. Um, Wall Street may not agree with it, but Wall Street, you know, aren't very good at running businesses. So I tend to ignore with that, that side of it. Um, they got an amazing balance sheet. And you know what, they could get bought out. The, the ingredients are there for, the, for them to get bought out. And they're adopting a strategy that could be very successful. If they're very successful implementing this millennial, targeted millennial with the Whole Foods 365 and are able to get a lot of good traction out of it, might be a really good thing. The other side of it all is when I look at Whole Foods, it's very much a luxury brand. And one of the things that luxury brands, uh, problems that can happen with the luxury brand is when they try to go down market. Because when they start appealing to lower price points and broadening their uh, exposure of who they're trying to sell to, it can dilute the brand and dilute that value, that exclusive exclusivity value of the company. And uh, once you get in that situation, it's really hard to dig out. And a classic example is Coach. When they went to market and did those factory outlet stores, it really diluted the brand and they had to like retrench and it's taken and they're only right now starting to get that exclusivity factor now built in because they shut down a whole bunch of their factory outlets to stop selling those email things, uh, those email offers all the time. They, they became very exclusive. So it's really cool. When I look at Whole Foods, I look at it as that luxury brand. And when I see them doing the, the millennial target kind of three Whole Foods 365, I'm kind of itchy and kind of hesitant going, if it's, you know, kind of blended in with the whole Whole Foods empire kind of thing that it might dilute the brand in the long term. So I'm going, or on the flip side, if they position it as a separate entity, then it actually might be a lucrative thing. All in all is these are still clouds that are hanging over the company and things that are going to play out over time. But uh, at this decision, at this moment in time, when I was looking at the company, I said, you know what, I'm happy to take the 27% return. And if the company, if the stock falls back, I'll be happy to go buy it again. This is actually the second time I've bought Whole Foods. The first time I bought it, I made about 30%, I think, on the, on the return. So when you factor 30% and 27%, that's 57% return that I've generated by holding Whole Foods stock over the time I've held it. It's been a good stock for me, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to go in and buy it again and buy it again. So I decided to take the profit, walk away from it there. So, and... The only reason I was able to do that is having that exit point. If I just didn't have an exit number on me, I would kind of go, yeah, you know, maybe I'll just hold on to it for a little bit more. Ah, maybe I can make a little bit more money out of it. And a lot of times that's really when you run into trouble. So by having the exit strategy there, I, uh, I, it, I'm, I'm not making an emotional decision. I'm making a disciplined decision. And if you do that consistently in how you make your investment decisions, Chances are you're going to make more better investment decisions than, than worse investment decisions, and chances are your money is going to be growing methodically over a long time. You're not going to hit home runs, but they're going to, it's going to be growing. You're going to have progress. 
So these are the types of elements that I teach. I teach it in my uh, everyday investing program um, courses, and also I, I teach it through through uh, my courses, uh, through my uh, coaching services that I do that um, that I do. So that's what I did pretty much with uh, with my investment decisions last month. Again, you can go to my website, sageinvestors.ca, and go to the blog page, and you'll see my write-up on how I went through these decisions, on these, on these decisions. If you have any questions about them, feel free to shout. You can hit me through my email on the website, or you can follow me on Twitter, at um, sageinvestors is my handle. Uh, I'm on there all the time, tweeting uh, my investment decisions that I'm making in real time. Also my general observations of the market and my observations of different kinds of information, sharing different kinds of information that I find interesting that I actually use in how I make my own investment decisions. So feel free to follow me through there. Um, if you wanna catch any of my other podcasts, you can go through iTunes, you can go through the website or you can go through iTunes. All my episodes of Stop Talk are, Stop Talk are on the website. Feel free to subscribe and leave some comments, leave some reviews, it's all good. Be happy to hear from you. Welcome aboard, welcome aboard. So that's pretty much all I got for you today. Uh, this has been another episode of Stock Talk. My name is Amin Reina. Uh, of, I'm an investment coach again of Sage Investors and uh, we'll catch you again another time. Take care, bye.